Consequence Podcast Network. This week, on the sidetrack, we'll be joined by television writer, producer, and comedian Alex Black, who, among other things, will talk about his favorite all-time comedy cult classic, the 2010 Will Forte film that the Oscars totally ignored, McGruber. That's this week on The Sidetrack. Welcome back to yet another edition of The Sidetrack, your favorite podcast, interview, commentary, show that includes the letters S, I, D, and E in the title. It's a very, it's a niche, a niche world that we're um, successful in, but we are the number one. This is true. We are the number one audio podcast that combines feature-length audio commentaries, interviews, and the and the song we use at the beginning. There is no other podcast that includes all three elements. We are number one. Mark it down. This week, I'm excited to welcome Alex Blagg to into the fold. Alex has a pretty varied uh, history in media across, you know, early days, internet, the funnier dies of the world, uh, all the way up until most recently, having uh, written on shows like ABC splitting up together, the Jenna Fisher and Oliver Hudson show, to um, being the co-creator and executive producer of Comedy Central's At Midnight with Chris Hardwick. The list goes on, we're going to talk about it. And in addition to that, we're going to we're going to spend some good time talking about a cult classic that almost never was Will Forte's MacGruber, the 2010 film that cost 10 million to make and made 9 million at the box office. And yet they're making a second one because it became such a cult classic. Uh, it, it lives on and on in uh, rent-free in our brains. And so in an attempt to use obscure French statements as transitions to the second chapter in this podcast, I will simply say, without further ado, (laughs) I'm having fun today, without further ado, let's go to our interview, yes, with none other than Mr. Alex Black here on The Sidetrack. So here we are with Alex Black. How are you, sir? I'm great, Paul. Uh, it's it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks thanks for having me it's on the show. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for saying so. The first thing off the bat that I want to, you know, when you're doing research and getting ready, when I when you when I'm doing the research and the whole research team here at the sidetrack is, you know, culling together the mass amount of of uh, you know intelligence out there about you. There's there's um, you know how how you denote yourself professionally ranges the it ranges the gambit so we've got alex blag the writer we've got alex blag the producer we've got alex blag the comedian we've got alex blag the actor like today who you who are you today if you're if you're saying to yourself well today i'm really over indexing on writer with follow-up of actor like how, how are you ranking these things these days from level of activity 
I mean, I was hoping that you and your research team could tell me who I am and what I'm doing <laughs> right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess uh, I, I think of myself first and foremost as a writer. I always have, even though I've had kind of a weird, you know, circuitous career that I've done a lot of different things. But like the North Star for me, it has always been... Um, you know, somebody who writes and, and specifically, you know, I've always wanted to be somebody who writes for, for the moving pictures, um, you the know, talkies. TV and, and films. And um, yeah, so that, that, that remains kind of my focus. And, and despite the like diversions that I've taken along the way, that's, that's what I'm mostly uh, busy myself with now. Well, so, so much like Netflix has their, you know, any, I'm sure you know, this is a writer, Netflix has this algorithm. Everybody talks about it. Whenever a project comes in, a pitch, a script, they plug this thing into the computer algorithm. It tells them how much it's worth, if they want to buy it, if it if it will speak to the audience. Well, no joke, with the second season of this show, we have a proprietary piece of software where I take your name ahead of this <laughs> interview, I plug it in, and it gives me a list of from most most Im- like uh, most entertaining, most interesting to the audience to least interesting, a key we got a key sixteen milestones from your career, from your life, and what I want to do is I want to hit the top three or four, um, and hopefully they deliver. Hopefully that this software is working for us in the way we want. The bottom one, I'll always call out the bottom least interesting item on the list that got kind of p- pushed out was that you were born on the same day that Canada adopted O Canada as its official song. Did you were you aware of that? I was not aware of that, but I maybe on like a, a subconscious level I was. <laughs> I've always enjoyed Canada. I've found that their people to be just like relentlessly friendly and pleasant. And yes. yeah, maybe like on a a cellular cosmic level. I, I always knew that, even though I never intellectually knew that. But, but generally uninter- an uninteresting tidbit from your life. <laughs> generally. All right, so let's go to the first one then, the top of the list. We're going to hit the top of the list and hopefully these all work out for me. So are you aware of the, the kismet, the connection between moments in your life and the following three shows, Gunsmoke, Lassie, and the German soap opera, and hopefully I pronounce this correctly, Diane Reiner. Diane, it sounds like a person, but it's like Diane Reiner. <laughs> Do you know the connection? No. What is the connection? Okay. All three of these programs ended up producing in and around 600 episodes of original programming. Now, oh, do you wow. know? Wow. Now I, now I think I'm starting to get what maybe the connection Yeah, so, so you wake up. Saturday, August 5th, 2017, the morning after the 600th and final episode airs of the show that you co-created and produced at midnight with Chris Hardwick. You wake up that next morning. What are we thinking? Where are you at in your head? I mean, I I don't know. Like I, I was was that the last one? Was it the 600th? I don't know. Yeah, even 600th remember. aired yeah. on August 4th, 2017. Yeah, that sounds like right around the end. Yeah, I, I guess my thought was just kind of like, what a long, strange trip that was. You know, it was like that show was something that kind of, I guess it happened out of, um, you know, I was like kind of always an early adopter of social media for, for yeah. 
better and well i'm, I'm actually leaning towards for worse at this point uh <laughs> we'll talk about the death you know, threats later yeah exactly yeah. like i you know i i was like one of those people that was just like super online like on twitter all the time and like back when they would start doing those hashtag games i just found that i was like so almost like just like my lizard brain was just like so addicted to the feedback of like you know, pitching dumb jokes and right. puns or whatever based on these hashtags. And I started at the time I was partnered up with a couple of guys that used to be my agents. And we were trying to kind of start a production company in earnest without any sort of realization of like how insane it was that three people who had never produced anything were just deciding that we're like, we're <laughs> a production company now. But that, that's where that idea came from is I, I, you know, thought like, is there a way to turn this behavior you know, to gamify it and turn it into television. And, and then through just like an impossible series of kind of luck and um, relationships and things, the show ended up happening and then ended up being successful and going on for hundreds of episodes and multiple seasons. And it was just kind of something that like, I don't know, like there, I still kind of am like, how did that even happen? Like, what was that? And um, what was the... Yeah, so before you know so when whenever a creative person is is ideating something you always have in your head your virtual vision board of like here's what i imagine it's going to be and here's what i imagine my place in this world and experience is going to look like and feel like how did it differ from pre you know ideation phase to you know your two seasons in what was was it was it what you expected was it different and how it was different in that, like, I was a first time creator or producer, like at that point, literally. So before that show, before we, um, before that show premiered, we had done a pilot, but in between the long period between when we shot the pilot and when it went to series, you know, I was still just like a guy who had done nothing. And I got my first staff writing job on a scripted show. It was one of Amazon's first shows. It was called Betas. And right. it was kind of like Silicon Valley, except not as successful or good. Um, was it John Goodman? Was that John Goodman? It, no, that was Alpha House. Literally, Alpha. their two their two first shows were Alpha called and Alpha House and Betas, which is the most like perfect Silicon Valley right. development. That's right. That you can imagine. But I was the other one. The, the it was called Betas, and it had like Ed Begley Jr. in it, and like <laughs> some younger younger actors that have gone on to to prominence because they're great, like Maya Erskine from Oh um, yeah, she's great. Yeah, and John Daly and. Anyway, and so Karin Sony, we, I was a, literally a staff writer, like the lowest on the totem pole in that writer's room. And it was a great experience. And I actually did love that show and loved working on it and the people that I worked with. Um, but I, you know, once we wrapped, I walk out of that writer's room as a staff writer and literally walk into At Midnight where we're just about to start producing it and I'm an EP you know and like one right. of the creators of the show it was a very weird yeah. like shift in in terms of power and and whatever and so it just kind of was this thing that like it, it was a boulder that kind of kept growing momentum and kept getting bigger and kept going further and I just kind of like held on to it because like I said like I, I don't know it was the only thing up to that point that I had sort of created or could point at as being you know, um, um, responsible for or whatever. And so I just kind of was like, I'm going to ride this out and see where it goes. And I think a couple seasons in it, it you know, it felt weird. Cause it was like, we had a lot of EPs, you know, we had, I think there was 12 executive producers on it. So I was just kind of one 
small voice, you know, probably you on 12, the EP why totem need, pole. Why do you need 12 EPs on that show? <laughs> uh, I would argue that you don't need 12 EPs. <laughs> it was more just a function of the way that it, it kind of came together in development. It was like me and my two partners. So you're starting with three yeah. and then we bring it to funny or die and they have a couple EPs there. And then uh, they bring it to Tom Lennon and Ben Garant and there's two more. Right. And then, you know, Tom couldn't host it in series. So it was like, well, let's get Chris Hardwick and then let's get his manager. And right, I think right. there might've been another one in there. You know, it was just like, it kind of kept truly like a, like a, uh, you know, like a snowball or whatever, just getting bigger and, and kind of taking on a life of its own. And so by the end, I just sort of felt like I was, you know, just going along for the ride truly. And, um, I think I did have a lot of contributions to what the show became and, um, and, and, and feel proud of like help, helping kind of build out the infrastructure of it. But, you know, once you hit episode, like, I don't know, 300, it's sort of like, okay, we're just making, you know, what a, it, it was is. a very formulaic show. Yeah. Well, it's funny. One of, one of my friends um, is one of the producers of ridiculousness on MTV. And oh yeah. It's Shane? Uh, Shane Nickerson. And it's a similar kind of scenario. Like those guys came up with the show. And then once you, you know, once you know what it is, it, you can just go forever. Like it, yes. It, it just does it. So of all the 12 executive producers, whose idea was it to not require the three comedians on each episode to not wear anything but their street clothes? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I was watching an episode recently. I'd seen the show way before, you know, we're, we're talking today, but I sure. w went back and I was watching some in like the first episode of season four, I think. I was just like the three guys, this dude just rolled out of bed. This dude just wore his leather jacket. <laughs> It was yeah. just funny. Yeah, we uh, we did not have a wardrobe department <laughs> on that show. I, I do I do think it was just yeah. It was like people showed up, whatever they were wearing or wanted to wear, and uh, that was that was pretty much it. I think there there was makeup. At least. Is everything that Chris Hardwick is um, as the host of that show? How much of what he says is prescripted? Only the like little intros and outros to the segments. I mean, um, you know, that stuff, the stuff that basically the stuff that sounded scripted was scripted, but he, you know, he's such a master of, of being a, just like on his feet host of stuff. You know what I mean? There's like a few people that just have like the Ryan Seacrest thing. It's like that skill to yeah. just kind of be like a true master of ceremonies and, 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 you know, and he's also a, an accomplished comedian in his own right. So he had no problem kind of like, keeping up with the other comics and sort of riffing and, and doing his thing. And so he was off script quite a bit. I mean, you know, it was really just the stuff that was like kind of the, the train tracks of, of the, the sort of the game show stuff that he was probably reading off the prompter. And, and so for all the people, and this is a big number who aspire to create their own game shows like this, I mean, I, I, do you call it a game show? I mean, it's like an interactive comedy show, right? Well, how would you categorize it? Yeah, I, I always thought of it as like a late night comedy game show is yeah. sort of my my I mean, uh I mean today, how does somebody make a show like that happen? What is the what is the advice for somebody who who, you know, thinks they've got a really unique idea for something that can be kind of stripped in the way that that show that can run hundreds and hundreds of episodes? What's the what's the step? I mean, all I know is my own experience, which is that, like I said, I mean, like an impossible amount of things had to fall together in just the right way that it actually bums me out to like look back at it and realize like, 
oh, that was like almost impossible to like <laughs> make everything, you know, fit together and happen in, in, in the right people and at the right time and, and, and all those things. It, it, it's so daunting to think about like recreating that, even though, I mean, I know people do it. I just don't feel like I have the like the real good advice. Like there's lots of people, even people we worked with, there was like, like our showrunner kind of came from the world of like shiny floor game shows and like there is an art to it I think and there are people that really understand the game show format kind of intuitively for me it was just like I just used the game show as like this kind of sturdy old-timey tv format in which that I could sort of infuse with comedy and social media and that kind of made it new so maybe that's my only advice is like you know if you're trying to bring a new idea into the world like maybe look for something older that maybe even feels like out of fashion and see if like by combining these things you end up with um you know you end up with an idea that works but i i truly just feel like i stumbled into this i, I said i will say as an aside it's just funny because i always love this idea that like i do on some level feel like i, I ha also have a game show in my my genes because um the true story my parents like in the late 70s and the Richard Dawson years were on like seven episodes I think of the family feud oh my uh, seven episodes they, how's that they because they kept winning they won you know they were like on a winning streak for for a, you know a number of episodes I don't remember the exact number it was like that's amazing yeah and so with the but with the prize money they got this trip to Club Med Mexico which is where I was conceived so I am that's... a direct that product. is, if you believe in the universe and energy and, and all that, um, yeah, and maybe yeah. O Canada, you know, wouldn't it be ironic? Yeah, if <laughs> that was connected as well. So, so when when you're doing this show, clearly, you know, ahead of that, you you were on writing on Workaholics ahead of that show, yes? Yeah. Well, so I like after betas, I went to to uh, at midnight and kind of worked really hands on on it for a couple years I think a couple seasons like I was like uh I was the head writer for a while and just kind of really kind of figuring out like getting that infrastructure in place so that the show would kind of run smoothly and we kind of knew what we were doing like tonally and creatively and, and just like you know getting the show there and then once I felt like that had happened and we were able to bring in some people that could, could just kind of steer the ship I took a job writing for workaholic. So then I kind of went back down, like at this point, because scripted works separately than the late night, like even though I was an EP and creator in late night, they don't really recognize that in scripted. And so right. I think on workaholics, I was like an executive story editor, which is right. like a couple letter, you know, up a couple uh, runs up the ladder, but it was still, you know, it was like a junior kind of writing staff position. And I, but I loved that show and I liked those guys a lot. And so, yeah, so I, I went and did that to because it was always important to me throughout this to not, you know, even though At Midnight was successful, I, you know, I didn't want to lose sight of the fact that you right. know, writing is really the thing that I care about. Well, and that was that was my question, because, you know, you're you have your your laser focused on, as you mentioned in the beginning, like writing is really how you you want to, you know, move through this industry. That was the goal. How do you you know, you stumble, we all stumble upon these creative ideas and it's usually the ideas that you don't expect to go that go. And then you've got to make a choice. You know, do you, is that going to take you away from the thing you're passionate about? Now, ironically, 
the algorithm for the show denoted workaholics as the second key moment that audiences wanted to hear about. So I'm glad that we're talking about it. The show, I mean, I remember when that show came out, it was so funny. I think I was working at Xbox at the time, and that was literally the number one downloaded show on the platform. What, for you, having done betas and then jumped into Workaholics, like what was that experience uh, for you? I mean, clearly the sense of your sense of humor was perfect for that show, I think. Thanks. Yeah, it, it was super fun. It was, and it was really different though. I mean, in that I came in into season six. And so at that point, the show was like already a phenomenon. Those yeah. guys were already stars. Like they also, they have a really solid and tight crew. I mean, there's the, there's, you know, Adam and, and Durs and Blake, but then they also have Kyle, who's the director and is also an actor in it. And then they have their showrunner, Kevin Etten, who'd been there since the beginning. And so they basically, again, it was its own kind of like well-oiled machine. And, you know, I went, I remember going into that room kind of feeling intimidated a little bit by the success that, you know, at that point, like that the show was so successful and those guys are just also so funny. They're all in the room. And I remember, yeah, I remember being nervous and like worried that I wasn't going to be able to hang with them. And I think if anything, like I probably over like there's this thing, you know, anytime you're in a writer's room, there's this kind of like unspoken psychology of like everybody wants to score, right? Yeah. Like you want to have the best joke, you want to have the best idea, you know, you want to be kind of pitching all the time and being the person that like they everyone feels like they can rely on for the good idea or the great joke. And I think I probably went too hard in there <laughs> out of like insecurity yeah. and wanting to really like flex and prove myself. And I, I, Feel like i i learned pretty quickly that like that's just not the vibe of their room there's no like real focus on like okay guys we got to like break the story and figure out the episodes and blah 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 and and i probably went in like being a little too type a but i think i was able to like write the shit like i, I i'm good at i think at kind of reading a room and I, you know i i definitely like relaxed and, and stuff a little bit but i yeah i was just like amazed at kind of like the the seeming effortlessness with which the writing of that show happened. It, it, and maybe that's how it came across on screen, like why those guys' friendship feels just so like kind of loose and yeah. funny and organic, because it, it, it really is. It's like, that's just like who they are. Did someone have to pull you aside and say, dude, slow down? Or was, to your point, were you just reading the room and you're like, this is not working in the room? No, it was definitely me reading the room and being like oh wait a minute like everyone else is just kind of, like no one else seems to give a shit about like impressing anybody right. or scoring <laughs> or whatever and I just I feel like probably by the end of the first week or so I was just like okay you probably need to like dial it back a little bit because um you're like I, I felt like I was being the try hard guy you know? right right well, so I was going to say, so every writer on uh, any show that they're, they've been on can look back and say, these were my greatest hits, this joke, this joke, that moment, this moment. Do you have a moment or a, a line or a joke that to this day you say, I'm super proud of this one thing? I mean, honestly, it's funny to say this because like obviously every show, anyone that knows anything about TV writing knows that like every even though an episode says written by Alex sure. Black or whatever like it's all room written and rewritten that's and right like everybody's it's, it's very collaborative everyone's contributing but I feel like the episode that I wrote that season was like 
kind of in general, like it, you know, even though they, they have this like laid back approach, I guess part of that also is that they would, uh, they kind of empowered the writers to like really take ownership of their own episodes. And so I feel like mine had like, maybe even more so than other shows I've worked on had like just more jokes and more ideas that survived and, and made it into the final show in my episode. So I feel like I was proud of that in general. Um, and, and, and like, I created this character Trilly Zane that was uh, played by Clark Duke. And <laughs> right. he, um, he was kind of based on this thing that I had done, you know, pre at midnight, pre writing, I, I did this thing called bajillion hits where I like played this kind of ridiculous, like social media guru who's yep. sort of like an oblivious idiot. And Trilly was basically like, I was kind of putting some of those same ideas and words and jokes into his mouth. And so seeing somebody kind of getting, seeing that like character come to life in workaholics was, was very fun. That's fun. That's fun. So, okay. So let's move on to moment number three per the algorithm, which uh, you, you, in the last year or so, the couple of last years, you worked on this ABC show splitting up together. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So talk about all of your time and moments with executive producer, Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> uh literally never met her one time <laughs> she didn't uh, even interview you for the job no 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 she she uh i don't know like i mean i'm sure she weighs in on this like do you, as a as a part of the writing staff are you not getting like here's the really nice considerate ellen degeneres list of notes no, I don't. I mean, her company, she had an executive that was like her development partner, her producing partner. And, you know, he would come to the table reads and, and, and give notes and listen and stuff. But like, I, no, I don't remember ever getting a single note from from Ellen herself. I mean, that show was also it was like Emily Kapnick created it. And she's so good and like just incredible like one of the most talented writers that i've ever worked with in terms yeah. of just like the, the kind of effortlessness of being able to like produce comedy at that level and um so i feel like she probably didn't need a lot of notes but um but yeah usually they would come from like the network after a table read and then uh, maybe the the you know ellen's company would would weigh in but i guess i i don't know i don't know how much of that was or wasn't coming from Ellen. I sort of think it it wasn't though. Do do you have a sense of why you think or what you were the reason why after two seasons that show gets canceled? Uh, honestly, I think it's because they hired me. I think it, <laughs> Don't say I that. I have this like I look when I look at my career and my credits and scripted. I I am starting to worry that I am like a curse on a show because it's it's been a re repeating thing where like i come in for the second season of a show yeah. and then it's the last season and i don't know if it's me or if it's just like i you know part of it i think is like obviously the um the the television landscape that we're in it's just like shows tend to not last as long especially netflix right now their whole model is doing like two three episode seasons and that's then moving right on to something else and um but i do joke uh sort of that that i am the the kiss of death for your show i mean so in, and on that particular show so so you know here we sit um, in a very strange time uh right. with covid and all these other things but the the upside is that clearly content is still remains king and 
so many platforms value content and they're figuring out the ways around shooting safely. For you, what is, uh, what's top of mind? What are you most focused on right now? Is it feature writing? Is it um, getting on another show? What can you talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting kind of going back to like a thing you brought up before about like, you know, during At Midnight, I did actually really wrestle with this thing where it was like, I felt like I was kind of getting pulled away and distracted right. from my real goal, my real passion, you know, like it's hard to, to walk away from anything that's successful while it is successful. And I, I think when I, that finally concluded, I really felt like I had wasted a lot of time that I could have been kind of growing in the, in the world of scripted and, and not just in like my level and my, you know, um, quote or whatever, but just in, in talent and experience. And so once that ended, I really, I left my producing partnership and just kind of dove headlong into a, a series of staffing gigs. You know, I did this show on Freeform called Alone Together and then Splitting Up Together and then the show on Netflix called Trinkets. And I just kind of went one right into the other because I felt like I needed to make up for the like lost time and experience that I, I wasn't staffing while at midnight was happening. Right. And um, and so when the pandemic hit, you know, the staffing stuff has slowed down because there's just not as many things in production and there are Zoom rooms, but there's just, I think there's less of them. And so I just sort of took that as a sign. And then also I have two small kids and just practically like trying to deal with homeschooling and, and yeah. keeping, you know, a house of people sane. <laughs> right. I found it hard, you know, I found the idea of like chasing staffing super hard to be kind of uh, I don't know. It just was not my first instinct. Yeah. And so I really tried to use this time to kind of catch up on all these like ideas for, for TV projects and film projects that have been kind of backburnered and, and long simmering while I was staffing. Cause when you are staffing, that really takes up so much of your focus and attention. Um, so yeah, I've just been trying to use this time to be as productive as I possibly can on the projects that I, I want to, you know, see happen to get something made. I mean, my big, my big goal is to, you know, to be a creator and in, in scripted. Is TV the priority? Um, TV, you know, it's weird. I, I, I'm a little bit like agnostic about TV and film. I love both of them. I mean, film was the thing that pulled me in. Like that was always from the beginning, like, what my first goal was, was to be a screenwriter. And, and, um, and I do love writing. I've, I've had kind of like some side, I think of it still as like a side career, uh, to T I mean, TV has paid the bills for me, but you know, I've, I've had some success as a screenwriter, you know, I had a, a script that was on the blacklist and, uh, you know, sold stuff and, and, you know, things like that. I still haven't had that one kind of original spec that's gotten produced yet, but um, it's definitely a, a thing that I'm always thinking about, always focused on. And then, you know, I guess TV just feels sometimes more kind of present and urgent because more of my my experience, working experience has been in that context. Um, and I just think both of both of the forms are, are you know, uniquely interesting and exciting to me. I mean, there's so many, the, the ways, the stories you can tell in, in TV today uh, are pretty incredible. And and then, and then just, yeah, I love, and I've always loved movies and will always write them. And um, yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I'm necessarily prioritizing one over yeah. the other. What was, what was the, what was the blacklist script? What was the log line? 
Um, it was a it was a script. This is it was like in 2012. It was a script called Fuck Mary Kill. It's it's, it's about three guys that were kind of um, that had really tough high school experiences and kind of moved on with their lives, moved away to the big city. But you know, ten years later, they're still feeling kind of um, haunted and hamstrung by these these traumatic experiences that happened to each of them towards the end of high school. And so they go back home for this Thanksgiving break. And each of them are kind of on this drive to respectively, um, you know, uh, you know, marry the one that got away, uh, fuck the hot girl that, that had humiliated him and, and uh, kill the, the bully who had tormented him through school. I mean, figuratively, but like basically that's what it, it kind of, it's kind of a high school revenge movie um, that's with, fun. with three characters. Well, Hey, drive. you never know. To 2012, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Good, good, good materials, good materials. So, you know, Thanks. you know, and clearly, everybody, everybody in town goes back to that blacklist again and again to see oh, which ones have yet to be produced. Okay, that well, that's the interesting. That's one of the, I guess the cool things about film is that like there's not like scripts screenplays never really die the way like if you know I don't know you go out with a pilot and TV and you take it around and it doesn't get made for whatever reason like that it's kind of dead but somehow yeah in, in features it's like a, once you've written a script and it, it's kind of this like it's like a chip on the table that like it, you know you never know it could always hit that's later right on. i mean listen it took Fer- forrest gump seven to nine years to get made that's about <laughs> where we're at on fuck marry kill so you just right, right. never know this could be the next forrest gump it could be the next forrest gump robert zemeckis directing fuck marry kill <laughs> i can see it now all right, so na- random question for you. Is this true that one of your representatives, one of your agents or managers has the same last name as the antagonist Jason from the Friday the 13th movies? Yeah, that's true. My manager, Tucker Borges. Uh, how- I've never actually asked him. I think about it a lot. Though, where I'm like, <laughs> that was my question. You- like, how? Uh, I mean, that's out of a Seinfeld episode, but it's like, I would think about that all the time. Like, the, wh- I don't know. I mean, it just seems strange to me. I do. I want a manager who has the same last name as a serial killer from a horror franchise. Yeah, luckily I've never seen a hockey mask. Though he is an avid golfer, so maybe he's got a <laughs> secret side hustle where he's murdering teenagers with a three wood or something. I mean, I there's know. there's a concept that's free. You just take that. You know, run with yeah. that concept. A manager <laughs> who kills teenagers, and you go from there. Um, <laughs> So one of the things I ask people always is, I call this the worst, the best experience. It's what was that one career experience where you were going into it, you were thinking to yourself, this is going, this thing is so fucked up. This thing is going to be the worst thing. Why did I even decide to do this? And at the end of the day, it became one of the best experiences that you've had. What was that? Hmm, that's a good one. Uh, I mean, this could be an interesting segue into MacGruber, but like before, you know, before any of the stuff we talked about before at midnight or any of the, my scripted work, when I, I started out in the, you know, on the internet, basically I was a blogger. This is how I, I think we first yeah. got onto each other's radars was way, way back when. The blogosphere. Um, yeah. The blogosphere, the, the, the wild, wild west of <laughs> the unsettled internet. I, and, I was, um, by the way, I was joking in the opening of either this or the, or the commentary episode and who knows where it is now, but like literally I have on my shelf, like people were publishing blog books with yeah. like, you know, be like, Oh, I want to know what the cool blogs are. And you buy a book and like scan through it. And Oh, there's the URL. I'm going to type that in. Cause this blog is about, 
you know, pets or this blog is about humor. It's just so random, so different. Anyways. Yeah. It was such a weird thing where I was like, I remember, you know, being in my early twenties and I was like right out of college and like I was living in San Francisco, not really sure. Yeah. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I had no kind of like connections or clue as to like how to realistically uh, approach that. And I had this really kind of bad day job where I was like working at a small marketing agency in the East Bay. And I would just like waste the whole day on the internet kind of reading early blogs and stuff. And then of course, soon after was like, well, I'm going to do that. And started just kind of like randomly publishing kind of dumb, really crude early humor type pieces. And, and I think because it was at that point, you know, it's pre-social media, it's, it's, it's just, it was so unformed and unsettled that like, I was kind of able to attract some attention and, and that for a while was like, I thought it was going to be like, this is sort of my path, right? I'm going to like, you know, gain some prominence on the internet and then somehow parlay that into the career in, in film and television that I want. And, and, and that worked to some extent, and I am going to get, this is all going to lead back to the question that you just okay, asked good. me, but you know, <laughs> it, it, I, I ended up getting this job at, at VH1 to like run the blog for best week ever. Right. And, and that was super fun. And like, you know, it was kind of just like, you know, it was like a, it was comedy writing, basically just like making jokes about celebrities and pop culture. And, and, you know, I felt like I was kind of going in this right direction, right. Where like I was building my, my, my online reputation or whatever, before there was such a thing, even as follower accounts, like, but it felt like my influence was, was rising. And I, I just sort of was like, this will eventually kind of spit me out where I want to be. But what ended up happening is like, maybe this is like the theme of kind of my personal story. It's just about like digress, creative and professional digression. But I, um, you know, it kind of pushed me more into this world of like online publishing. And like, I started getting, you know, calls from like, the, the celebrity gossip sites of the world. I mean, literally Harvey Levin called me when he was about to launch TMZ and was like, do you want to come oh, wow. work with me and like, like run this site for me? And even then I was like, I didn't even know what TMZ would become, but I was just like, I don't know, something seems sketchy about this. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and like, but that was kind of the, the world that I found myself being pulled more and more into. And so to answer your question, like, I guess the gig that I, the final, the last gig that I did in this kind of career path was this, this company called um, Buzz Media. And specifically they hired me to like run a network of celebrity blogs. They called Celeb Buzz or something. Right. And at the time they were running, um, they had a contract where they were basically publishing the Kardashians personal blogs on their behalf. Okay. Um, again, this is like really early days, social media before they kind of like became the social media superstars. They were, they actually had these blogs and it would be like Courtney Kardashian. Like I'll never forget editing this sponsored post that was supposed to be written by Courtney Kardashian describing her first period. It was like for Tampax or something. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so I'm sitting there like editing it, trying to put my brain into Car- Courtney Kardashian's <laughs> brain and being like, what was this like for me? And I remember just like, that was the, that was the wall that I hit where I was like, what, what the fuck happened? Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and that was the, the, around that time I got this weird, 
opportunity where like some publicist was like, hey, this movie MacGruber's coming out and they want to do they want to do like a college tour and they they want to have like an embedded like blogger reporter with them. Would you want to like come cover this somehow? And it, of course, I'm like, there's no there's no like select, there's no like angle to this. Like, th- like I'm not going to break any news here. I was like, this is just going to get me out of the office for sure. five days. So wouldn't like go hang out with a bunch of comedians that I like from SNL. And, and so I did that and I ended up going on this like weird, complete boondoggle um, trip, uh, basically just to get out of work. But as I, and I think I mentioned this in the commentary, but like, as I'm watching this movie over and over every night and kind of getting to know the guys that made it and listening to them do their like Q and A's with all these college students after the movie where every kid of course is like, how do I make it in Hollywood? And over and over, I would like listen to their answers. And one of the the one that kept jumping out to me was Yorma. The director would just be like, you know, for me, I had to like make the choice to be okay with like being broke for a while that I wasn't, maybe I wasn't going to be able to like pay the bills or like, I was going to have to like just cobble it together, but that would at least give me the freedom to like do the creative stuff that I want to do with my friends. And like, I just had faith that eventually that would pay off. And that was like, it like, that was the thing that I needed to hear in that moment in my life, because I was just like holding on to this thing that was sort of safe for me that I had stumbled into. And and it was also the thing though, I think that was holding me back from really like trying to do the thing that I wanted to do. And, um, and after that trip, I think I quit my job like a month later. And that was, you know, that was the last celebrity blog that I ever edited. And I've been, you know, slowly and steadily, you know, building a career in, in Hollywood. That's a good story. That's, that's inspiring. How, how long of a trip was it? How long was the boondoggle? It was like five days. It was this kind of mad dash where we started in um, North Carolina at UNC, and then we went to uh, Indiana, and then we went to uh, Colorado, and then we went to the University of Arizona, and then we ended up at UCLA. So it was truly like a cross-country thing where we would, yeah, we would go screen the movie, uh, stay overnight, and then fly early the next morning, screen the movie, stay overnight, fly the next morning, and and... Yeah, it was just this like really weird, insane. It was kind of getting to see a press tour like that up up close, but also through the lens of like these like weird college towns across the country. Um, and who other than Yorma and Forte, who else is with you? So it was Yorma, Forte, Ryan Philippi, and John Solomon, who was the co-writer. And then um, uh, Brendan Trost, who was the DP, who's like a director now. Yeah. And then like, I think, two publicists from from the studio how how funny and so so you know you clearly you have a whole commentary where you talk about the film but when you're watching this film multiple (laughs) five nights in a row multiple times over a week in that moment in that week do you say to yourself this is one of the funniest comedies i've ever seen is it something that like a fine wine over time kind of latches itself into your subconscious how does how does it evolve yeah, it's that, that's the funny thing is like when you watch, I think that's probably the only time in my life I've ever watched a movie five times in a row, like on successive nights, you know, um, it's like the first time you see it, you kind of see just the surface of it, which is like, oh, yeah, this is a super funny movie. And like, 
you know, I enjoyed it. It was great. And then the second night you're like noticing things you didn't notice. And then like by the third night, I feel like it's almost like, it's like Stockholm syndrome or something where you're like, your mind is starting to be like, is this actually like an unbelievable piece of art? <laughs> like, yeah. like, you know, it, it, I don't know. It like, I definitely, I definitely left that trip feeling like this weirdly deep connection to MacGruber that especially considering like, you know, this is a very like broad, silly comedy based off of an SNL recurring character. Like, it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be something that you would think of as being a, a super like influential or uh, meaningful movie to you. But I it did it, like created this like I, I created this bond, I think, with that movie and and this kind of like investment in it. And, and, and also, you know, again, getting to know those guys like I mean, looking at it now from being a little older and being a little more along in my career. I'm like kind of amazed at how nice and kind and welcoming and inclusive they were. Cause like, like Yorman knew, like I was somebody like I wanted to be a comedy writer. And I think at one point he like, let me pitch some jokes from a Groover's Twitter or something. Like they were just super cool and, and inclusive in a way that they, they absolutely didn't have to be to like some celebrity blogger or whatever. No, I just came out of it feeling like kind of this like weird, far-flung relative of this extended family of MacGruber. Like, I know I had nothing to do with that movie's success or whatever it is now, but I think just having gone through that experience, it yeah, I, I, I feel this kind of like, this connection to it. That experience is, to me, feels like the real world um, Cameron Crowe story in almost yeah. fast, that's, you know? That's, that's you go totally on tour funny. with the band. Yeah, totally. That it was, and that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it was like my comedy, almost famous, where I, I yeah, I a hundred percent felt that, and like that experience was similarly meaningful to me. I mean, for even a, a while, I was just like, maybe I'll write a movie about that trip. But then I was like, no, it's like too inside baseball. <laughs> but um, uh, it was, it was definitely like that. That's, that's definitely how it felt. Well, I mean, it's a great personal story. It's um, the I've seen the movie maybe you know not as many as you saw in the first week uh, that you experienced <laughs> it, but a f at least two or three times. And it is a it really the more you watch it, the more you catch. It's it's such a fun fun movie. So for folks who haven't seen it, now's your chance. You can get it on all the different digital platforms, and um, you can find our our specific commentary episode with Alex and his uh, feature-length audio commentary. I want to thank you for not only taking the time to sit through and do that on MacGruber, but also take the time to talk to all of these folks today. I think the algorithm, the the software we use today, resulted in um, something that the audience will enjoy. Oh, well, thank you, truly. I mean, getting to, getting to watch MacGruber again uh, on its own was uh, a joy, and, and getting to talk about it, I can't, I find it crazy to believe that anyone wants to hear what I have to say about it, but I love the idea. I'll imagine that there are uh, millions of people out there. There are millions. Can be listening to it, and um, and yeah, dude, it's always like a pleasure to talk to you. Truly, I'm I'm glad that we got to do this, and and really flattered that you even thought of me. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. And with that, I want to thank our guest, Alex Blag for joining us this week. A lot of, lot of interesting stuff there. I'm, I'm convinced there is a movie, an almost famous version of Alex's 
experience traveling with the the cast of MacGruber. I'm gonna. I hope Alex does something with that. I think there's something interesting. Want to thank you guys uh, for listening. If this was the first of two parts of your participation in the experience, the second episode with Alex's feature-length audio commentary for MacGruber is available now. The movie itself is available on all sorts of platforms, streaming, downloadable, available on those old physical discs, silver discs. You can get those too. I think DVDs are what they're called for the, the kids on Snapchat. So check it out, enjoy it, and as always, please let your friends and family know about the sidetrack, uh, the three R's of podcast success, rate, review, and retweet. We would appreciate it immensely. As always, we'll be back next week with yet another interview and feature-length commentary here on The Sidetrack.